Most about a light they say that shines so clear. So raise your glass, we'll drink a toast to the little man who sells you thrills along the pier. He'll take you up, he'll bring you down, he'll plant your feet back firmly on the ground. He flies so high, he swoops so low, he knows exactly which way he's gonna go. Greetings and welcome back for the fourth episode of Gnosis. Today's honored guest is Robert Forte. Robert Forte is a scholar and researcher of psychedelic drugs. He first studied with Frank Barron, who started the infamous psilocybin project with Timothy Leary at Harvard in 1963. He moved to Esalen in 1981 to study with Stanislav Grof and then attended the Chicago Divinity School. During this time, Forte conducted an independent investigation of MDMA learning to synthesize the drug from Alexander Shulgin himself. He distributed this therapeutic throughout the country and turned on many household names to this psychological medicine. He obtained his master's degree under Mircea Iliad and has collaborated with many of the leaders in the field of psychedelics, including Albert Hoffman, Timothy Leary, R. Gordon Wasson, Ralph Metzner, Terence McKenna, Claudio Naranjo, and many others. Robert is the former director of the Albert Hoffman Foundation and currently is adjunct faculty at California Institute for Integral Studies. I'm quoting Robert's bio here from his website, alteredstatesofamerica.net. 
as I think it clarifies best his intentions for truth and reconciliation as it relates to the wonderful potential of these psychedelic substances to heal and inspire, as well as the undeniable and terrifying history of the MKUltra program, which first launched them into public consciousness in the early 1950s and culminated in the psychedelic 60s, an era which forever altered American culture. And I quote, for most of my career, I have been interested in the esoteric and the healing potentials of these plants and drugs. Lately, I've been more curious about the sociological and political aspects of the different psychedelic movements of our time. My research has brought me to realize another layer to the modern psychedelic scene, revealing a story that is somewhat at odds with the prevailing mainstream narrative that is now broadcast enthusiastically in contemporary media around the world. The history of religion contains the entire spectrum of human experience, including the most beneficent concepts and experience of enlightenment, God, universal intelligence, and so on. It also includes the most malefic realms of humanity, occult mind control, subjugation of populations, exploitation of our good nature, rationales for genocide, war, human sacrifice, and other perversions. The history of psychedelics is no different. End quote. I hope you enjoyed this presentation. If you find this material stimulating and educational, please consider becoming an ongoing supporter by subscribing, making a purchase in our online store, or liking, sharing, and commenting online. It has been said that the truth is a lonely warrior, but with your support, the fight for liberating Gnosis will continue. Hey, Robert. How are you doing today? <clears throat> uh, well, I'm pretty good. Um, just did a just came off an earlier interview. An interesting young man wants to do a, a film on psychedelics, a documentary film on stuff that may interest you. <clears throat> Art has to do with um, athletic and um, performance and head injuries and transformation seemed like a really good guy actually i he was connected to me through ian cool yes that's fascinating to me because you know i, I experienced a lot of strange i've always had mystical experiences but once i was getting uh, routinely hit in the head <laughs> they kind of went to another level so mm. perhaps there's something to that uh did you ever hear the stephen king book uh what was it called the dead zone i think the the main character he he has an accident ice skating hits his head and he starts to have paranormal visions and so that kind of sets him on this quest to understand what's happened to him and how to rectify it uh it's been god 20 something years since i read it but that always stuck out to me i know the book but you know i've never read it i've i've uh but that sounds interesting yeah well 
as uh, who was it, Rumi, who said, there are a thousand ways to kiss the ground. <laughs> we, we, we do all kinds of things. The history of religion is full of yeah. a whole variety of things that uh, people have done to themselves or to other people to, um, uh, you know, crack open our vision. Yeah, breaking open the head. I think that was breaking a book up. by uh, Daniel Pinchbeck, so... Yeah, yeah, all types of characters find a way to to get out of body and, and into spirit. That's for sure. Yeah, on that, on that, go ahead, please. Well, that breaking open the head is an expression that the um, the Bwiti use. The Bwiti are the um, the people that um, use iboga, and it's called that because there's a uh, there's a feeling, and I've had iboga, ibogaine or iboga, the root. And um, it was a very unusual experience. It felt like there was a, um, a metal ball, like a metal billiards ball inside my head that was rolling around like this, like mag electromagnetic sort of feeling like this going around my head. And I, and I wanted someone to like whack, like if I could just crack open my head, this thing would have liberated itself. And I always wondered if that was part of the genesis of that expression wow how, how long ago was that experience and and what drove you to want to be willing to because i hear that's a really dramatic like one of the most dramatic psychedelic experiences you can have i read about it first in a supernatural by graham hancock he he went into that domain as well mm -hmm. to see his his uh, recently passed father yeah so me um <clears throat> i was part of a program with a group of um students and psychologists and anthropologists in the beginning in the kind of mid 1980s it was uh, with Ralph Metzner who was a a really good friend of mine and teacher and um and we were just getting started learning about these things so we we did sessions with um everything just to learn about different ways to use them in different contexts and the iboga one i was especially interested in, you know, you just said that Graham wanted to do it to commune with the spirit of his father. That's one of the things that the Bwiti says that takes you to the land of your ancestors. And I remember that um, I was just about to become a father. My son was would, would, would be born soon. And I thought, well, so now I'm a potential ancestor. I might as well get a little more familiar with the territory. And it was a very interesting experience. It wasn't, um, I didn't have a, enough, I guess, for that huge kind of thing that happens with a lot of people, but I had, I had quite a bit and it was very, it was very, except for that experience with the head, it was very, I, I call it psychodynamic and that I, I got in touch with, you know, um, psychological patterns that were transgenerational from my, my, my parents' parents and the whole business of immigration over here, they came from Italy. And it was um, just a lot of like living and discussing my own personal psychology in light of my um, ancestors. Thank you, Robert. That's wonderful. You know, it just froze up. I don't know if you can hear me. Um, you just froze there. Yeah, <laughs> now, now I can. Okay. So now you and I, you know, that, that one afternoon that we sat down in Atlanta, we had such a long and fascinating conversation. And I, 
I so appreciate the information, our, our continued connection and the information that you've sent to me and, and our friendship. And I just, uh, it'll, I'm, I'm totally trusting of, you know, sharing our conversations with a larger audience. And Recently, you've been discussing Michael Pollan and his appearance on the Joe Rogan Experience and also his uh, being championed by the New York Times as kind of this new psychedelic guru that we should all give our attention to. But it seems you may have some different perspective on why that might be the case. Yeah, sure. We can we can just jump right into that. That's a big subject. That's very it's a good prompt for um, we could go in a lot of directions. Um <clears throat> You know, let's see. Um, I haven't seen the Netflix series yet. Um, I have read his book um, a couple years ago. Um, I was asked by someone who was interviewed by that for that book if um, I would like to talk to him. I knew he was in the process of writing it for a couple years before it came out, and I was certainly open to. But then I never heard from him. It was fascinating for me to get really get into that book, <clears throat> um, because a few significant people that he mentions in that book as having been um, instigators of this psychedelic renaissance were either um, were students of mine or people who I worked with many, many years ago. I mean, Michael Pollan, you know, picked up the subject in like the early 2000s, 2004 or 2005, he got interested in, in the subject and um, did a lot of research, both uh, literary research and then personal explorations. And he, and he contacted a lot of people and, um, of course, I started this subject in my own exploration as a scholar and as a mystic um, 20 years earlier than that. And um, so there were a lot of people like, if I mentioned them without the background, it might be confusing, but I'll just pull one out of the air. A guy named um, James, uh, not James Fadiman, that's another one, um, Charles Schuster. Yes. Charles Schuster is a guy who, um, was uh, the head of the National Institute of Drug Abuse, who um, Pollen credits for his um, vision and initiative in helping the Johns Hopkins project get going. And I knew Charles Schuster from the mid 1980s when um, I was in graduate school at the University of Chicago. And a lot of people are not aware that Charles Schuster's role in the history of MDMA was not visionary at all, but it was actually kind of conspiratorial. And, um, or another guy, uh, Robert Jesse, is a guy who wrote to Pollen in the early 2000s to see if he would be interested in writing and researching about this subject. Well, Bob Jesse is a guy who had been a friend of mine since the early 1990s approached me for information and connections about the subject of psychedelics and religion. And I made a number of introductions for him <clears throat> and then ended up giving him a lot of material that became my first book. He published my first book. So I guess what I'm saying about Pollen is that he's, 
He's got a tremendous publicity engine behind him and has really been propped up behind the podium to be the, the um, spokesman for psychedelics. And he's really a beginner <laughs> at the subject. And uh, the book is quite excellent. It covers a, a small part of the history of psychedelics. And um, it's not really, um, it's really a narrative. It's really a, a story. It's a script that he's putting out there. And, um, you know, as you know, from our conversations and maybe what we're going to get into here in this conversation, <clears throat> that I've become aware that there's a whole nother layer to this psychedelic movement. In fact, it's really inaccurate to call it a psychedelic movement because um, it's really a series of movements. There's one family of drugs, but there are, there are several diverse people that are involved in the subject, often for very opposite reasons. And what I say when I talk about this stuff is that it's, it's really this, the psychedelic story is a microcosm of the history of religion. Now, the history of religion is a very big subject. You know, I mean, it covers religion begins with human consciousness back, you know, we don't even really know when that started, but many thousands of years. And it includes some of the most wondrous and important aspects of the human experience, our relationship to God, or supernatural realities, the, the incredible um, occult physiology of ours, things like Kundalini, the farthest reaches of human nature, yoga and meditation and ethics, and you know, all these wonderful stories about human beings' relationship to the supernatural are in this history of religion. But also in the history of religion, there's kind of the opposite, because the history of religion also includes how this relationship to the supernatural is used as a form of population control and is an excuse for wars and manipulation of people and the very opposite. So it's a, it's a vast history with two extremes and a lot of things in the middle. And so the, the psychedelic story is exactly like that because we know everybody, people that have studied this subject are well aware that these substances have this ancient use and they can be used to give, provide glimpses of the supernatural, to awaken consciousness, to heal, all kinds of very wonderful things and experiences. But they're also very intimately um, tied in with the opposite of that. You know, they're used for um, mind control and manipulation. And so, um, as you know, also, I'm beginning to talk more and more about this stuff, having devoted the first part of my career to um, helping research get going, helping intelligent, responsible people get more involved with this. <clears throat> but over the last like 10 or 15 years, I guess, I've been um, aware that this other layer of the, of the uh, phenomena really needs to get pointed out because a lot of people are being um, tricked by, um, by this growing publicity and popularity. And there's an op going on. It's a psy op. It's, a, it's kind of a, 
a war against democracy. And, um, and I know people will have a, have a hard time when I say this and I get into a lot of arguments with people and I'm trying to find a way to talk about it that's not, um, doesn't get into arguments, but it, it's more in the form of education because, I mean, <clears throat> I know more about this stuff than almost anybody. I've, I've been involved in this subject for, um, you know, 40 years in a way that I don't know anybody that's gotten into it quite in the way that I've gotten into it. As I said, as a scholar, researcher, I've been very involved in the underground. I was manufacturing uh, MDMA and providing it to lots of people. I've had um, close personal relationships with many, if not all of the most significant people that brought this subject into modern awareness in the 1950s. People like Stanislav Grof was, um, you know, widely regarded as one of the most um, experienced and important LSD um, researchers and clinicians, was one of my very first teachers. I lived with him at Esalen and I was his uh, assistant there and I suppose very close for a number of years. Or uh, Frank Barron, who a lot of people haven't heard of, who was the, um, was the person who started that project at Harvard with Leary in, the, in 1960. A lot of people think that was Timothy Leary and Ramdas that did that, but actually it was Frank Barron who started it with Tim. And then he left and then Ramdas came in and was really more of just kind of Leary's sidekick. Uh, but Frank was been my, my teacher and my mentor for you know over 20 years until he died. Timothy Leary and I were very close. Albert Hoffman and I were very close. He treated me like his grandson for a number of years. Gordon Wasson. Um, you know, the man who brought the mushroom into public awareness in the 1950s, you know, considered Terence McKenna used to call him like the Moses of the modern psychedelic movement. You know, I got to know Wasson. He invited me to live at his house. Um, I could go on. I mean, Oscar Janiger, who was a very important psychiatrist in the Beverly Hills area, who turned on a lot of celebrities in the 1950s and did an extensive project on creativity. I used to live at his house and was a director of a foundation with him. He has a massive archive that I'm one of the few people that went through page by page. I went through Leary's archives with Leary. Um, Alexander Shulgin, who's considered the godfather of MDMA. I, I had a close relationship with him in the early 80s. He taught me and my friends to make MDMA before it was illegal. I mean, I have all these connections and all this background and experience in this subject that totally fascinates me. And, um, and so, I, you know, again, I feel like it's kind of an obligation to tell the whole story about what, what these drugs are, how they got here, be be more realistic about their effects. And um, it's challenging because I, I find myself in conversations with people who are psychedelic drug lovers who don't really want to hear about this underside, but um, yet I persist and that's why we're here. <laughs> wow. Uh, well, uh, you've, you've, you're clearly one of the foremost, if not the foremost expert in these studies on the planet, and yet you're suspiciously... Uh, not as popular as people such as Michael Pollan or Sabre <clears throat> Doblin. And uh, we had discussed this previously, how 
Uh, you, you yourself are not self-seeking with, with your work. You're a religious studies major and a psychologist and you, you wear all these hats, but you've always been in support of the medicine and of healing. And it's part of your family lineage as well. And so I often find that people are genuinely driven by the right motivation. Oftentimes they're, they're overshadowed. They're not, they're not given the uh, acclaim that they deserve because it maybe <laughs> would be too powerful in setting things right. And we know in this world, there's so many secret societies and other agencies that want to limit that, that possibility we, we possess as humans to truly enlighten and truly enliven and, and heal. So I, I want to say thank you very much for all your work. And I, and I do hope that you receive the credit you deserve, not that you're seeking that, but that you truly are a doctor, you're truly a healer and a teacher. And, and these are the people that uh, often rewrite history and, and help us uh, as, you know, evolve into that next level. Well, thank you. I'm not quite a doctor and, I, and I, I, um, I'm a little shy about calling myself a healer, but I am a mystic. And I was uh, long before I became interested in these substances. I was very um, lucky when I was uh, very young, 10 or 11 years old. Um, I was into nature and there, where I grew up, there was a, a place we called the Glen. It was a little stream flowed through the forests and, um, cut this Canyon through a red sandstone area. And I just loved going there and there were fish and frogs and snakes and salamanders and turtles. And it was just my paradise. And I had, um, I had a spontaneous mystical experience there when I was, um, 10 or 11 years old, just sitting by the stream where I was, I kind of, I felt the stream is like the blood in my body and the earth was my body and the wind was my breath and this feeling of oneness, just an alteration of consciousness that was just very brief and very startling and very profound. And it just gave me a sense of oneness of with nature. And then Shortly thereafter that, the stream began to become polluted, construction upstream, chain. We don't really know what happened. It changed the alkalinity of the stream or something. And the fish just like overnight, trout and the little leopard frogs that I loved and salamanders were just dead on the sun, the sandy banks. And it horrified me. And I could see that um, this was the planet. And some people were as... Um, were as shocked and terrified by this as I was. And, but a lot of people weren't, they were just like, ah, you know, they're building these, these um, industrial parks upstream. It's good for the town. It's going to lower our taxes. And this became the issue that really motivated me and everything I've done since. Like, why do some people, why are some people aware of these um, depth of consciousness and our interrelationship of all things and how come some people aren't? And how do we get more people to be aware of this? So uh, that was my motivation. That's incredible. Yeah. I, I so I got into I got into you know studying um, meditation and psychology and political science, and I was I was opposed to drugs when I saw. Um, I'm 65 years old, so I'm like a, I'm in it's in the mid 60s when these drugs start appearing in our society and I thought they were dangerous I saw people that took them in my high school or grammar school 
you know, they kind of got freaked out. They weren't, they were like living normal lives and suddenly they're off in these, this radical shift and I didn't notice anything beneficial about it. This is an affluent suburb of New York City in Northern New Jersey. And I saw these as poisons, like, oh God, I'm LSD. Like, why would you do that? And it wasn't until my third year of college that I realized that uh, actually these psychedelic mushrooms had a role in the origin of religion. I began to take note of that and um, dove right in and learned everything I could about them. And then it wasn't until just you know, 10 or 15 years ago that I began to understand that actually what their introduction into society in the 50s and 60s was, I believe, and I've got evidence and we can talk about this, was a mind control operation to distract people from political developments in America to kind of, to kind of throw us off. And it's, and it's been a process of recovery. It kind of backfired on them a little bit, but um, it's, a, it's a complicated subject and I appreciate the chance of trying to talk about it with you. And, and I appreciate your candor because you know a lot of people who w would be on a first name basis with the, the pioneers and the architects of all of this would be reticent to reveal that there could have been manipulation or dark side for the aforementioned reasons, you know, ego, of course, and success. And, and now we see people push to the fore with, say, the Joe Rogan podcast. Yet we, we rarely hear a dissenting perspective on the dangers of psychedelics or their sordid history as, as it relates to MK Ultra. So you're... Exactly. you're you're doing something very brave and courageous and people do deserve the truth and the full picture. And so again, thank you. And I'd love to hear more. And is, have you run into uh, many dissenters that are willing to engage with you and debate from say the other side or the more Pollyanna ish perspective alone? Well, sure. I mean, a lot of times, but it's not, as I said to someone the other day on Facebook, you know, like it's not really a debate. It's not a debate because, um, People that find the information that I'm sharing offensive may try to argue with me, but they don't know what they're talking about. So I'm, I'm trying to like just step back and show them information. It wasn't easy for me. And I, I'll just tell some of these stories, you know, I mean, but I want to say this first about that. Um, when you read Pollen's book, like Pollen, there's practically no criticism or cautionary note about psychedelics. The only thing wrong with the history of psychedelics when you read Pollen's book was um, that they were used, people became anti-war in the 60s by using them. Like, well, what's wrong with that? And then the problem was Leary, that Leary popularized these drugs that were turning people against mainstream society. Well, that's kind of a good thing, actually, because Mainstream society in the in the fifties and sixties was was um, um, you know we we just had the assassination of John Kennedy, we had this Vietnam War that was starting to rage. Kids, my you know my friends' older brothers were getting drafted and going off and fighting these wars, and um, society was going in the wrong direction. We needed a radical shift. Leary Leary was the hero of the psychedelic movement. Tim was, Tim was a guy who was originally recruited by the CIA to popularize the drugs. And then he realized that he was being used for a political agenda 
that he abhorred. And so he loved the drugs. He loved the role he was in. He loved being famous. And so he had to figure out a way to like keep the stuff he liked and use it against the totalitarian, totalitarian forces that he despised. And that's why his life is so kind of hard to figure out, like, who is this guy? Because he was kind of, bound, he, was, he was in a process, you know? I give the CIA a total credit for sponsoring and initiating the entire consciousness movement, counterculture events of the 1960s. Dr. Timothy Leary, the 1960s Johnny Appleseed of LSD. The CIA funded and supported and uh, encouraged hundreds of young psychiatrists to experiment with this drug. The fallout from that was that the young psychologists began taking it themselves, discovering that it was an intelligence-enhancing, consciousness-raising experience. And uh, so, I mean, for me, when I first began learning about this subject and I learned about the CIA, I had very little interest in it. I wasn't interested in hearing about what the CIA had done, these terrible experiments that they performed on unwitting subjects. We've seen that popularized. It just didn't interest me. Uh, it wasn't until I was going through Gordon Wasson's archives. Okay. So Wasson, should I back up and start, say a little more who Wasson is? I mean, I don't know who our listeners are and, and uh sure please uh I, i'm very familiar because i've been following your work for a while now with uh, gnostic media and, and joe atwill and steve altram and others but for those who haven't uh followed that that line and i will be plugging that information in as a resource library but please by all means okay so wasson this is how i got started i was i was taking a course at um i was a student at columbia university in new york and i was interested in the history of religion and um first day of class that our professor um, was talking about the Vedas, which is the oldest body of writings in Indian religions. And uh, the oldest of the Vedas were called the Rig Veda. And it was about a ceremony um, where um, these ancient people 5,000 years ago, I think it was, were um, go out and hunt for Soma. So what well, and soma was nobody really knew for hundreds thousands of years what was soma it was a plant it was a spirit it was a god it was scholars have debated what soma was for a very long time and um our professor wrote on the board he said in recently in the late 1960s a a man named r gordon wasson first time I'd heard that name, who was, ironically, perhaps, a, a Wall Street banker, is how he was described, who was a, studied mushrooms as a hobby. And he and his wife conducted this extensive research over decades and finally came to a, an argument that Soma was a certain species of mushroom. They said the Amanita muscaria mushroom. And I just thought that was so fascinating that here's a guy who was a Wall Street banker who was interested in hallucinogenic mushrooms and then wrote an important book solving a riddle that had baffled historians for forever. 
And I just, I remember him writing the name Wasson on the board and I just thought, wow, that is so interesting, huh? All these years, I thought that these mushrooms were just these things that fucked people up. And now here's the significance to them. I'm going to look into this. And so I dove in and little did I know that it would be, um, so that was, that was 1978. It would just be three or four, let's see, 84, 1984. I had, um, you know, by then graduated from college and had started graduate school. And then I took a year off from graduate school and I was spending a little time in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I decided that I would organize a conference at Harvard for the, in the divinity school on psychedelics and the history of religion. And so I got support from the Harvard faculty and, um, and um, Richard Schultes, who's a very famous uh, ethnobotanist, said to me, one of the world's leading experts on the botany of psychedelic plants, said, why don't you invite Gordon Wasson? And I thought, wow, why? You know, I didn't even think of that. He was like such a famous, I was so shy, like, really? Whoa. And he, he dialed, he had a dial phone and he dialed Wasson's number and he slid the phone across the decks. Me, next thing I know, I'm on the phone with this guy, Wasson. And the next thing I know, <coughs> I um, borrowed my father's fancy Lincoln Continental and <clears throat> got a haircut maybe and put on a sports jacket and drove to Danbury, Connecticut to meet the great man. And, um, and we hit it off because I was kind of scholarly. I was down on Leary at the time. I was really interested in the history of the, of the mushrooms from a scholarly, non-revolutionary you know, way. And Wasson greeted me and, um, and I drove him up to Cambridge and we had this conference and I drove him back and we began to write letters. And then, in fact, you know, one thing you'll put on for the viewers is I, I conducted a, a fairly extensive interview with him that's published in my first book. He only gave two or three interviews in his whole life. And one of them was to me and we covered his whole career and I thought I was special. And, um, and then um, several years after that, I decided to um, bring some of his books back into print. They were, they were classic and important texts on the history of psychedelics and generating some of the world's most important religious traditions. And he, he did a book called The Wondrous Mushroom. He did a book, The Road to Eleusis. He did a book called uh, Soma, The Mushroom, Divine Mushroom of Immortality. And they were, he was a very um, elitist sort of guy. And he first printed his books only in these very expensive, limited editions, and then paperbacks. And then they went out of print and they were like, they, they, if you could find them, they would cost hundreds. Like here, look, here's one of these. Like, I lost almost my entire library in a fire, but I was able to save some things. Like this is this is a typical example of Wasson, how Wasson published his books, <clears throat> right? Like gold leaf, <laughs> you know, these fancy fancy editions that are that are printed at a a very famous um, printer in Italy, the Stamperia of Valdenega, and. Um, and he gave me gave me all the copies. He had a few of these, and he gave them to me. 
I mean, this book I could probably you could get, this is worth hundreds of dollars on the on the antiquarian book market. So anyway, I decided that I was going to um, bring them back into print and get scholars of religion and history and anthropology to re-examine this subject that was lost in all of the hysteria of the of the 60s. And um, he had died by this time, but his um, I knew I, I knew his uh, daughter and she was the executor of the estate and they gave me permission. And the next thing I know, I was granted access to his archives, which had been bequeathed to Harvard University. There's a whole section there, the Gordon and Tina Wasson Ethnomycological Library. And you needed um, special permission to get in there. And um, the Wassons said that I was working with them. And it was like, Harvard, Harvard gave me an office in the in the herbaria, I had a secretary, and she would go and um, I had this whole menu of all the things that were in the archives. And I went through, I still have a lot of them scanned into my computer, but I, I was mostly interested, of course, in the mushroom stuff. But I noticed that there were some files that were just correspondence or banking stuff. And I thought, ah, what the hell? And I asked her for some of these. And then suddenly this was like that day at Columbia, a light went off in my head, like, oh my God, this is, this is huge. Because um, we all knew that Wasson was a Wall Street banker, but that's not really very accurate or descriptive because he was, he wasn't really a banker in terms of banking stuff like he didn't deal with money that much he dealt with um he was into public relations mm-hmm. he worked for jp morgan and jp morgan and sure that's a bank but jp morgan is really more like a political force and and not one that's really friendly to democracy i mean jp morgan was a supporter of the third reich and i just started to think about this stuff and then i'm looking at wasson's letters and who he's writing to and the tone of these letters. So he wasn't just a banker. He was, he was a guy that was in the very innermost circle of what I call the American fascist movement. I mean, he's, he's pals with people like Alan Dulles. Now, you know, people should know who Alan Dulles was. Alan Dulles was one of the, <clears throat> the first or, or the second, I think he was the first um, director of the CIA. Alan Dulles was the main guy behind the assassination of John Kennedy. Alan Dulles was the guy who started MKUltra. Alan Dulles, before he was in this position as the head of the CIA, he was was a banker who um, invested money of the Third Reich. He was Hitler's banker, basically, right? And then this is, this is where this subject starts getting really scary and, and offensive to a lot of people who are not that hip to American history, but the, that whole post-World War II and post-World War II history has to be revised. So like your, your excellent um, conversations with Joseph Atwill, who's one of a man I respect immensely and is a very good friend of mine, you know, that's really important stuff to get out because we have been, you know, anybody that's been educated in the United States in a conventional, you know, education has been tricked. And I had more than a conventional education. I mean, I went to two Ivy League schools and University of Chicago, and I've taught at the University of California. And people are, don't have a clue about this stuff. So, um, so anyway, there I am in, in, in Cambridge in Wasson's archives. And I realized, my God, this guy 
is like working with these people. And they're, they're, and it, that just was shocking to me. Like was used to be just think it was ironic that the psychedelic movement, this hippie anti-war thing was kind of started by a guy who was a Wall Street banker. But he wasn't just a Wall Street banker. He was a fascist. I mean, his friends were. I don't really know. Wasson was very cagey about his own political um, positions. I didn't find anything about it, but his associates and how his associates deferred to him. Guys like Alan, uh, like Alan Dulles and um, George Kennan was another one. And I began to realize, huh, there's something, something else going on here. And so um, I began to dig deeper and began to realize things that were um, shocking and disturbing and important and um, put me into a kind of depressed place for a few years, like, oh, my God. Um, but eventually I kind of pieced it together that every single person who was um, leading the way introducing these substances were connected to intelligence, um, CIA, or they were, it was a social engineering operation. And then I, I had kind of advanced that myself. And I, and so it became kind of a duty of mine to tell the whole story. Wonderful. This is, you know, if, if Netflix were worth a damn, this is what they should really create a documentary about, but we know they're not our friend and they have no interest in revealing the, this hidden history. That's, that's yeah. amazing. Yeah. I, I noticed in my, my career. So first I did this book, Entheogens and the Future of Religion, which is, a, I'm still very proud of that. It's an important book about, um, the ancient and modern religious uses of psychedelics. That's an important book. But then I began to realize that this narrative that Pollen is just the latest voice of, that Leary was a bad guy. I began, I'd, I'd started to hang out with Tim Moore. There was just something about his vitality and his sense of humor that I really liked. And I got to, I decided that I wanted to do a book on Tim to kind of congratulate him for his courage and the unique spirit he brought to this subject. I didn't even really know that much about the CIA then, but I noticed as soon as I did this, that I was no, I was, I was countering the narrative already. They had, they had a plan for Leary to really scapegoat him. And here I was honoring him with a book. And so um, that's when I began to step outside of that psychedelic movement complicated stuff. I, mean, I wonder what, you know, this is one thing about talking, uh, doing podcasts and here we are, we're having this conversation and um, I love giving live presentations because I could look around at the audience and I could see if a person makes a funny face, I could say, what do you think in there? And we can get into more of a thing, but here we are. I, well, you know, down the line, it, I would love to see you at events and, and presenting on this because that, that feedback is there's something about the spontaneity of souls really coming to grips with their <laughs> their real experience, not the one that was mediated and televised, but the one that was underneath it all. Yeah. And, and to to you and, and, and Mr. Leary's credit, you know, I 
that that spirit is so american to me you know the like we we're yes it's beautiful to see people be willing to take on the juggernaut and to speak truth to power and to win and i feel like you know i when i was uh dealing with symptoms of concussions you know uh there's a bookstore very close to where i was living and i stumbled onto uh timothy's book let's see what was it yeah you're i forget the title i remember the cover it's like pink with like yellow flowers i think like your brain is god something like that and uh, it was just a little pamphlet almost it was a short paper but his his spirit and his invigoration to be anti-establishment to say look there's more uh than you realize to this life don't let these authoritarians you know uh, cage you into a, a limited hangout if you will into a limited experience uh you know embrace the all you know, have your own, find your own way, you know, uh, be, be a soul seeker and, and it changed my life. And I, so I had, I had done mushrooms once before, seven years previously, uh, a friend of mine, his brother had committed suicide. And so he had gotten, in, he was looking for medicine and he invited me on board and had an incredible trip, uh, it did change me, but I was kind of afraid of it. And at that time I was more, uh, I just, my ambition was like to be the best martial artist I could. So I thought that those were, uh, antithetical pursuits uh, then about seven years later i'm i'm actually had just fought for a world title so i kind of achieved that objective to some degree but along came with it you know serious head trauma a lot of serious depression and uh so looking to heal from that and recover who do i stumble onto their work joe rogan wrote the forward for a guy named eddie bravo who's one of the most popular martial artists in the world now mm -hmm. and uh who they've both you know popularized psychedelics and cannabis use and I think there is a lot of medicinal and therapeutic benefit, absolutely. But, no doubt about it. No doubt about it. But uh, it's I, I tear up a little bit thinking about it now because along that came with that was my own naivete and my own gullibility uh, was, I think, magnified <laughs> by having people that I looked up to kind of just saying, yeah, you know, just jump in with both feet and see what happens. And not everyone uh, manages to swim through those currents, but... Uh, Maybe that's part of the hero's journey for all of us is you just kind of have to continuously align with the bigger picture and what is good for not just yourself, but others and learn those harsh lessons one way or the other. Uh, wow, this is uh, really intense. And so you're, you're really one of Tim and Leary's best friends. Well, I don't know if I put it that way. I mean, I was, uh, I were, um, we had a, we had a close relationship. Um, we, um, you know, he was, I looked up to him, he was an icon. And my relationship went with him went through several stages. I mean, when I first, when I first met him, I thought he was, I was so very disappointed. He seemed kind of pitiful and <laughs> clownish. And I yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't fathom that he was a Harvard professor. He was just sort of distracted and kind of deranged. You know, I heard him, he gave a talk here in Santa Cruz at something called the Community Consciousness Carnival. And he was kind of trying to, he'd been in, just gotten out of prison and he just looked like a burned, wasted guy. And, um, and then soon after that, Frank Barron, I met Frank Barron who started talking about him. And I said, really got it. And, and he, and he, um, then he introduced, I went to Tim's, birthday party and got to see another aspect of him still seemed really kind of egomaniacal and 
and he wasn't his best self. And I just kind of, you know, my other teachers like Stan Groff and um, Claudio Naranjo were very down on Leary. And so I was kind of inherited that. But it wasn't until um, it was in the early 1990s, I had gone over to Switzerland <clears throat> to see um, Albert Hoffman visit him. And Hoffman, of course, is the discoverer of LSD and the, um, the discoverer of, of psilocybin, the molecule of the mushroom. And he was um, another guy that just was what we, he loved me and I loved him. And uh, I thought it was very special that I got to meet this guy and he would always take my calls and invite me to his house. I visited him in Switzerland several times, asked me to direct a foundation that was created in his name. And, um, and I was over there in Switzerland on foundation business. And I was at Albert and I were in the, went to San, Sandoz, the pharmaceutical company that he worked for, where he was going to donate all their LSD um, research materials, their archives to our foundation. So I went over there to make that happen. And um, it's hard for me to say this because I really still have a great affection for Albert. Um, but I was over there. And so it's just me and Albert and a, a guy from Sandoz, Henri Viskov, the archivist. And we're talking about how to move this, you know, all these books. It was like a eight by 12 feet, you know, all these. And I, I pulled this, this uh, binder off the shelf and I was flipping through it. And I came to a report from the Israeli Psychological Association and said, Israeli Psychological Reports and then there was a Star of David in it. And then all the rest of the document was in Hebrew. And it was a very striking document with the fonts and very impressive. And I just, Albert's right here. And I just kind of showed it to him like, ah, oh, look at this. And when he saw the Star of David, he had this um, like reflex reaction. And he goes like this, he goes, eh, like this. I'd been kind of walking, this was, this is in Basel, Switzerland, and I'd been learning a little bit about Basel and it's a long history of anti-Semitism there, but there just was a, there's just sort of a scary thing about the German vibe, you know, growing up in World War II. And these guys, I don't know, they just seemed like Nazis to me and it was, a, it was bothersome. And, uh, and just this moment like, eh, you know, an obvious just outburst of anti-Semitism in a way that um, just like shocked me. And, uh, and then Albert, like real, like we were so comfortable with each other that he was like, I was just, it, he did it kind of for the benefit of Viscoff and he kind of smiled like, you know, the way you might see some rednecks in the South say, you know, like that was that kind of vibe. I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> Whoa, and then, crazy. and that was 1993. And it just like, it just landed with a thud. And I thought, what the hell? I mean, it's one thing, you know, the, you know, the Wasson and the, and the Wall Street irony, but here, like, and then I started to do a little research into this, like, 
you know, the Swiss roll and, and the Third Reich and, you know, this. And so I went down, I had to talk to somebody about this. And so I picked up, when I came back to California, I just called up Tim. And I said, Tim, I have to, can I come down and see you? I want to, I want to share something I just discovered with you and see what you say. He says, yeah, come on now. So it was the first time, it was the first time that um, I got to be alone with Tim. And usually is it a party or an event? There were other people around, but um, just he and his wife were home that weekend and she was gone a lot. So I, he said, oh yeah, come. He invited me to stay over. I spent two days there at his house, mostly just him and I. And uh, I saw a whole different character and uh, a man with such presence. And he just had a way of like, when he, want, when he was with you, I mean, before he was the psychedelic Tim, he was one of the you know leading psychologists of the of the country. His his book in 1959 was voted book of the year. He had developed these um, models for personality assessment that were considered you know really um, revolutionary paradigm shifters. That's why he got appointed to Harvard, and he just had a, a brilliance and a and a charisma about him that I finally really got a full dose of and funny. And that's when I decided that I was going to resign from the Albert Hoffman Foundation and do this book on Leary, like getting another look at who this guy was and why is he being, why, what, what is that whole episode all about? And so, um, so I did that book. That came out a couple years later, this one, um, just like, um, and it's subtitled that's Timothy Leary, Outside Looking In. We took that from the Moody Blues song, you know, Timothy Leary's dead. No, no, no. He's outside looking in. So anyway, we got that appreciations, castigations, and reminiscences. So it's just like a, a look at this guy. And... Um, and anyway, the rabbit hole just got, I was then from that point on, I was a, a, a frequent guest in his home. And then shortly after this, he announced that he had cancer and was inoperable and that he would, he was going to die. And he began this next last stage of his life. And I was invited to be kind of part of the team. And I was doing this book, which, um, I contacted a lot of people that were close friends with his and some adversaries that could, you know, write about who he was. And, um, and as I said, this is kind of challenging to this narrative. Guys like Michael Pollan or Robert Greenfield is another one like, ah, Leary was just an egomaniac. And well, yeah, he was, but he was, there was a method to his madness, and it's important that we understand. You mentioned a moment ago about, you used the word authoritarianism. Yes. And this is really, this is a huge subject that needs to really, um, I mean, we're doing a podcast. This, these conversations could really be stretched out into a, a graduate level course on, on modern American history and the psychedelic movement. And um the whole concept of authoritarianism versus democracy would be a, a very big part of that. 
mean, Tim was just one of a, quite a few social scientists, psychologists, and sociologists in the 19, beginning of the 1940s and 50s who realized that the psychological conditions of America, post-war America, were dangerously similar to the psychological conditions that allowed the allowed Hitler to gain power and for all that madness to happen, the authoritarianism and all the psychological um, personality aspects of why that happened. I mean, that's a whole field. That's what modern so that's where modern social psychology comes from, is an attempt to understand how that happened in Germany. How did how the German people, you know, one of the oldest democracies fall to the people that like conform to this madness? How did that happen? And how and and then perhaps more importantly, how it's happening now to us. And, so. and Timothy saw psychedelics as a as a preventative measure for that type of out, genocidal impulse that can be you know summoned and conjured by these sorcerers periodically. That's exactly right. Yeah. Frank Frank Barron first and then Timothy Leary. They had they were both, you know, loyal Americans, really loved the idea of American democracy. And they were they were scrappy guys who came from poor families who were super brilliant who Frank Barron fought in World War II. Tim was in the army, but didn't really see action. And they, um, they saw the post-war period. Um, they saw in the post-war period a growing authoritarianism and conformity and really wanted to get at the, what that was all about. And then when Frank had his mushroom experience, he thought, ah, this would be, this could be the thing. This could be the Holy grail of modern psychology. This could be the thing. See, just to back up a little bit, like one of the major differences in an extensive body of research into the authoritarian personality, <clears throat> one of the most important differences is that people who thrive in a, in a democracy have a worldview, have a view of nature, that nature is friendly. It's, it's something that you can harmonize with. You can versus the authoritarian personality is that nature is hostile and that we have to erect these defensive structures to ward off threats all the time. Right. And so, you know, how do you get at that basic worldview? And when Frank had his mushroom experience, he realized this could be the thing, this could be the game changer. And so he, um, he began, he got very involved in the subject and finding out ways to maximize the effects on personality change and stuff like that. So, yeah, you don't see any of that today in the memes that are used to popularize psychedelic drugs. There's nothing about Michael Pollan's not trying to change the world. Right. Richard Alpert, Richard Alpert wasn't trying to change the world. You know, they just want people to love everyone which is, you know, uh, again, it's complicated because of course, yeah, you want to, everybody wants to, you want love, but you don't want to be pacified while the Commonwealth is being robbed. Yes. Well, you're being fattened up for the slaughter. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that, and yeah. Wow. Yeah. Especially what we've seen now with COVID, you know, COVID is a genocide. It's still emerging how devastating it's going to be on our bloodlines and on our genes on the sterility of uh, or sterilization that's taking place. 
And uh, I want psychedelics to be put in their proper context. So again, thank you, because the medicine is there, but it appears that it also magnifies whatever unconscious drives we haven't come to grips with yet, and that we need wizened elders to really say, look, you know, the mesionic complex is, is like a, a known side effect. So you need humility alongside in equal measure. And because uh, we all have the Christ-like potential to be great, to, to commune with the all and, and imbibe prophecy and truth and, and uh, become more. But this, you know, when you see the Joe Rogan podcast, like you said, they don't have this counter view and they won't feature people like yourself or Joe Atwell necessarily. They should. I think if Joe's listening or any of his, his friends, if you're interested in getting at the truth, you, you have to look at all sides. Otherwise, you're not a journalist. You're a propagandist. It's just the way right. it is. Right. So you get around. I'm, I'm curious um, what you think about. Um, so, so Tim had this idea. Tim and Frank had this idea that the mass popularization of psychedelic drugs would help create greater numbers of people who were more um, inner-directed. They had an internal locus of control. They would be less likely to conform to um, social pressures if those social pressures were wrong or leading in a certain direction. And so I, when I was, you know, I did a whole study of 9-11 a few years after that terrible event. And I was, I was amazed that I still am amazed that, um, you know, people just go along with this official story I mean, it's, it's absolutely impossible. It's, it's like saying, it's like Santa Claus. Like at some point, at some point, kids grow up and realize that, wait a minute, reindeer don't fly. You can't, you can't this guy can't go in presence to every house in the world. That's like, doesn't make sense. And they come around to that. That's not really happening with 9-11. I mean, those guys couldn't fly those planes. Buildings don't fall down like this unless there's explosives. It's like physics 101. <clears throat> and so I was curious, could you notice that people who had psychedelic experiences were more inclined to doubt the official story? Wow, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, you know, my, my peer- Did that psych, was Tim right? No. Oh, wow, I would have to give that some thought. My immediate uh, response is, uh, I think yes, on a lot of levels, but then simultaneously no. So I, I was kind of reared around uh, Atlanta and Little Five Points, and it's this weird uh, amalgamation of com supposedly competing interests. You know, it's it's like a similar uh, tapestry that you've laid out, where you have these poles, and so you have old money like. Uh, the Coca-Cola Foundation, the Coca-Cola heirs, and you know, uh, you have simultaneously uh, remnants of the 60s, so you have Little Five Points, which is kind of uh, heavily influenced to be uh, independent and radical, and a lot of the people who set roots down there were influenced by the 60s, and then right next to it, you have uh, the CDC and Emory and uh, Oglethorpe, and so these liberal arts schools that are promoting the blind, the blindness to the fact that COVID's never been isolated, it's never been proven to exist. The vaccines, therefore, are illegitimate. The PCR tests are are uh, giving false positives by design. Carrie Mullis, of course, was someone who woke up and, like Leary, and understood it was being mis misused to uh, 
abuse all of us. And so honestly, at this point, I think my experience has been 50-50 because I've seen people recoil in horror. I, I, I did a lot of promotion in Little Five Points, which is a ley line and has a Masonic Lodge nearby too. So there's a whole nother aspect of this. But uh, I would see about a 50-50 split. And I, some people would prefer to just go right back to sleep and, and look for Soma to ease any any cognitive dissonance that they were experiencing, being mm -hmm. forced to wake up to a world where there is a sadistic... Uh, uh, super class that was willing and able to sacrifice any of us and make a global snuff film out of it. Uh, mm. And then I saw other people who they had the spirit of the 60s that was popularized where they were rebellious against people telling them what to think and how to think. But they're so good at shifting that pole too. So you have eight years of Bush and then eight years of Obama. And by the time you figure out Obama's a villain, you, you know, so many people would become hardened in their hatred towards Bush that they're like, well, at least he's not Bush. Yeah, they play that... <laughs> Yeah, at least, at least he's not Trump. It's a, in martial arts and judo, there's a, a term called kazushi, which means off-balancing. And so it's if I want to do a hip toss or if I want to do some type of uh, throw against you, I want to get you to give me the energy to aid in my throwing you. So I need to push you in a way that causes the response. And I think that's it, it summarizes that push-pull dynamic with mm -hmm. they're always yeah. Jekyll and hiding us, gaslighting us. And yeah. hopefully psychedelics could help people. Maybe it's a mixture. I think you need the psychedelics need to promote people to become more uh, less inclined to be gullible. Well, again, that was the uh, that was one of the when I think the beginning of this we said um, <clears throat> or was this my conversation earlier? People talk about the psychedelic movement. No, there's not a psychedelic movement. There's there are psychedelic movements. One family of drugs, but they're all these, they're different people that are using them for completely opposite reasons. Michael Pollan is using them. Michael Pollan has been appointed mm -hmm. to use them as part of this MK Ultra, which actually comes from, you know, the German mind control, ultra mind control. How do you subdue an entire society? Well, Huxley gave this, you know, let predicted this and brought it about in his first book, uh, Brave New World, a totalitarian society, a pyramid, all the wealth is controlled by these very small people at the top and all these people down here at the bottom. And they don't rebel because when they get unhappy, they're ordered to go on a, a day where they even psychedelic drugs and they're going to they go to burning man that's right you know they go to something like burning man where they fuck their brains out <clears throat> they take these quasi psychedelic drugs that make it feels like everything is okay well cosmic oneness and everything is fine mm. and then they go back to work on monday and they don't need to start a revolution or register voters or anything like that and um that's what that's the plan that they're enacting here that's right you know trust in authorities trust in the government, you know, there's nothing about social change in there. It's about feeling better, Yes. you know, using psychedelics to cure depression, make you happy. Happy people don't revolt, you know, that's what they're doing. <clears throat> and then, and then just to go back to Poland for a second, the dead giveaway in Poland is, you know, he, he writes this little thing about when he's interviewing, um, for a, a psychedelic guide and he goes to see Ralph Metzner. Now, Ralph 
I loved Ralph. He was like a big brother to me. And he, um, he was one of the very few, one of the only, Ralph and I, the only prominent people in the psychedelic field who have voiced concerns about 9-11. Everybody else has just gone along with this thing. Here's, here are these drugs that they say are, oh, they give you a religious consciousness and you'll feel all as one, compassion and empathy for life. But they don't even pay attention to 9-11. They're American taxpayers. They're funding this genocidal war machine. They're there, or they love Obama, you know, who's dropped more bombs than any president in history. And they're like, and uh, it's all about 9-11. And Pollen talks about going to see Ralph Metzner in his book. And Ralph um, started talking about 9-11. Oh. And Pollen thought he was nuts and just dismisses him. You know, one of the most respected and knowledgeable people in this entire field just writes him off because he was a 9-11 truth activist. And that's how you know. Yes. And, that, and that's the red pill. That's the irony is that, you know, uh, truly an event that was a sacrificial mass ritual to enslave humanity, to create the, the Holocaust in the Middle East, where it's going to leave, you know, millions of children orphaned and their bloodlines are being executed by uh, being uh, toxified by depleted uranium munitions. All of this chaos that was whipped up by these secret societies, you would have to look at that and the whole can of worms, the, you know, the Pandora's box would fly open. And Pollen, I'm sure, is is appreciating his soma-induced uh, trance state where he can be famous, he can be uh, gain accolades and, and, and praise wherever he goes. He's on the biggest podcast in the world. He's a best-selling author. So it's it's a lot. It reminds me of uh, actually the Bible where, where Tate, uh, Satan tempts Jesus. And he's like, you know, if you just bow down and worship me, I'll give you the world. And I think a lot of people, consciously or not, that's the choice they make. Because, you know, if they cared about America, I still see those people jumping out of those buildings on that day. I was 22. And uh, I couldn't, I could not put my head back together and go back to sleep. And uh, so I, I don't, and I, before that, before I'd ever done any psychedelics, I'd had lucid dreaming experiences. So I think mysticism... Uh, is something we are all wired with the potential to experience, uh, but the calcification of the pineal gland via mass fluoridation has probably numbed a lot of us. Yeah. So, so they've come up with this strange hybrid where you can be, it, it's a lot like being woke, right? Yeah. It means nothing versus being awake. And of course, if one, one strain or mo uh, movement gains more momentum than the other, they'll infiltrate. And, and try to rewrite history on the fly as, as Mr. Yep. Pollen's done. Yep. We're seeing the same scenario. But the good news is uh, people are waking up at the same time. Like I, I, I'm a proponent of the Q movement. I understand that there's a lot of detractors and I understand why. Uh, but personally, I just ask that people like Timothy Leary advised, you know, we should question authority and think for ourselves. And so, it's mathematically improbable that the president of the United States of America, Donald Trump, would have included prompts from 4chan, a message board that ended up included in State of the Union addresses and, and different tweets and that they would be synchronized with other uh, actors involved in this, this PSYOP.
As the Great Awakening has gained momentum, the Q proofs have become increasingly more blatant, with the President himself having provided many direct confirmations. On June 20th, 2018, President Trump held a rally in Minnesota, and as he was making his entrance, the President provided his first direct confirmation by pointing to acknowledge a patriot wearing a Q t-shirt. After the rally, a still was shared on 8chan, with Anon saying, Does it get any more obvious than that? As we see in the image, the rally attendee wearing the Q t-shirt was filming with his phone, and his footage was later edited alongside footage from a media camera angle. He also shared this and pointed out that this confirmation happened exactly 17 months after President Trump's inauguration on January 20th, 2017, and again asked, do you believe in coincidences? We're going to win, and we're going to win big. You just watch. We have the cards. They don't. Uh, where does it all go? I, I don't know. I, but I, I am uh, someone who understood that early on, yes, there is a back channel to provide all this information that now is more commonplace and has shaken people to their core. And that's the realization and the revelation of, of course, false flag attacks, organ harvesting, and now we have Roe v. Wade. It's not about women's rights. It never was. Margaret Sanger was a eugenicist. And that's the thing that all these psychedelic uh, proponents, uh, original proponents have in common is that they're linked to eugenicism. And so I just hope that people will hear what you have to provide, this, this more holistic contextual message about the beauty potential, but also the, the devastating reality is that you know, we've been lied to. Yeah, but, and we continue to be lied to. Yeah, you mentioned the Q anon. Boy, <clears throat> I'm uh, so I read all that that stuff that you send me, and I agree with you about the mathematical improbability. There's something there. Oh yes. Something. There's something there. Um, it's hopeful. Mm. Um, a few people that I have great respect for who, um, one in particular, I'm not gonna mention their name, but they're, um, they're uh, from a, um, a very, very wealthy society. They're um, raised to be a prince in this, in this, uh, he's all that inside connections. And he, and he is um, an avid, I won't say supporter, but has also taught me that there's something here I have my own, um, I mean, I've looked at a lot of that stuff with the human trafficking and some of these things that are just so atrocious. Um, and, I, and I more than believe that they're true and they're, um, but they're just so horrible that people can't really wrap their minds around them. I appreciate that part about the QAnon thing, but I, I, um, Ever since I was a little kid and I've been aware of Donald Trump as growing up outside of New York and, you know, he was always in the media and I just, I don't see anything decent about him. I don't like him. And, uh, and it doesn't make sense to me that, uh, that this movement of consciousness would pick him to be a, a leader 
when he's got these other connections that are very dark, you know, Roy Cohen and things like that. So I just, I don't, I'm not committed to anything there, but I'm, I'm fascinated by the, by the phenomena. And, um, you know, I didn't get to, I wanted to see what, um, I got to know Robert Kennedy a little bit last year and I've been, a, <clears throat> I've been a real student of the, um, John Kennedy and administration and assassination and cover up. And I, I know a lot about that. And, um, and then of course, Robert Kennedy, his assassination too. And when I got to meet Robert Jr. last year, we spent a little time together. I, when I first saw him, when he walked into this room, I was invited to a small dinner party and um, I could see, I could feel the spirit of his father and his uncle. And this was, um, he, he's one of the most um, just impressive and intelligent and courageous and good people that I've ever met. I mean, his aura is just like, wow. Mm -hmm. And um, I meant to ask him about that, the Q thing, because some of that stuff is just, just would have wondered what he'd said. And when I see him again, maybe I'll remember to do that. Um, and I understand that it's 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 very serious, you know. These revelations, it is biblical. Uh, it is something like out of the ancient scripture, and it's like an Armageddon scenario. But um, all I, you know, there's there's few resources that are still available because so much of it's been purged. But for people out there who want to invest the time to look at the coincidences that are so statistically unlikely, um, you have to go to BitChute. You have to go to alternative stations than YouTube. Uh, Mr. Truth Bomb, <laughs> great name, appropriate. A lot mm -hmm. like the uh, the psychedelic mushroom and the atomic bomb that that Leary would contrast as being related symbolically. I see this red pill of Q as uh, putting the pieces together long term. What our what our history actually is in so many ways, and encouraging people to independently verify this and think for themselves. But that doesn't mean that I, I it couldn't be turned or twisted, or that there couldn't be another aspect of this. But to date, I've, I've seen, uh, because I, I was drawn into it a lot like I was with 9-11 Truth. I, when 9-11 happened, I was 22, and I remember hearing a Building 7 that first day. And it, it, it was strange because I did forget about it because it was never brought up again. And then it yeah. kind of was just always dormant, waiting to resurface. And uh, I was, this is at the same time I was doing mushrooms. Literally, I would hear 9-11 in my head again and again. And I'd worked with Cynthia McKinney, the honorable congresswoman oh. from, from Stone Mountain in Georgia. And she questioned Bush straight away. Mm -hmm. And she was subsequently ousted at being a tenure incumbent and mm -hmm. beloved by all of her, her constituents yeah. there. And so yeah, she, she's special. She is. She's a hero. for. She's another American hero who, if, if the record were set straight, these these heroes who actually put their lives on the line to establish uh and 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 i've come to realize that this is the the antidote to mass formation psychosis is is yeah. actually truth tellers right and, and so uh yeah uh, in regards to q you know uh what we can see by their their willingness to assault and assail and deride and castigate anyone who brings this up that they're afraid and i think the you know the truth is coming out one way or the other. Uh, where we go from here, uh, 
It could be that Trump is reinstated because he was the rightful winner of the 2020 election. Uh, we have 2,000 mules. We have all of this forensic data that was acquired to prove that there is no democracy in America since Kennedy was assassinated. Right. So it's a, it's a, so it's a, it's one of those cans of worms similar to 9/11 when you go down that path, you're not going to be able to integrate into quote unquote normal society. Uh, and, and Tim Fuleri, to his credit, when I read his work, he you could tell he had gone through that experience and he was able to articulate that in a way that was um, very uh, affirming yep. for, for those people willing to be war truth warriors and, and seek the truth above all else. That's absolutely true. Cameron, I've got to hop off now. This has been a really good start. Let's, um, I've got to, I've got to meet somebody, but I want to, um, I'm going to give you a call back, uh, probably not tonight, but tomorrow and follow up with some of this stuff and we'll get, we'll get this thing together. Awesome. Thank you so much. This was yeah. great. Yeah. Thank you so much. Peace. We have a lot to talk about, a lot more to talk about. Very cool. Okay, my friend. See you, man. See you. Bye.